If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with a winner of this year's Dan David Prize, the prize of which History Extra is a media partner recognises outstanding scholarship that illuminates the past and seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of history. Today's guest is Dr Kimberly Welch. Kimberly is Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. Her research uses legal records to reconstruct the lives of free and enslaved black people in the antebellum South. Kimberly spoke to the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr, who's working with us on this series. Professor Kim Welch, it's an honour to have you on the BBC History Extra podcast and congratulations as you're a 2022 Dan David Prize winner for your research on the legal history of black people, both free and enslaved. And your work on this is, it's hugely important in recovering black voices as so much of the documentation associated with black people that has survived is legal. Um, Before we begin talking about all of your research and your experiences doing the researching, um, would you introduce yourself and your role and how and what led you to work on legal history and recovering black voices with it? Sure. Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you for um, your kind words of congratulations. I'm still... um, I guess a little bit in shock and so excited and humbled to have um, been a recipient of this amazing honor and prize. So I am an historian of race, slavery, and the law in the early U.S. South. And I came to this because I was really, I've long been interested in the study of slavery and went to graduate school um, in order to continue that study, but uh, not um, legal history. And when I was a PhD student, I read um, a wonderful book by a historian named Josh Rothman called Notorious in the Neighborhood. And it's on cross-cultural or interracial sexual relationships between white men and black women. And it begins with the most famous of Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, and then, um, and then moves from there. And there was a footnote in that book. And we often, historians often follow other people's footnotes. And there was a footnote in that book involving a, just a case that I found so surprising 
Southern law does not protect uh, enslaved people from um, most things. They they are people without legal standing. And this was a case that involved um, the sexual assault of an enslaved Black woman by her owner or enslaver. It was a criminal case. And she had, in the night, went into his, it's a terrible case, she went into his home, um, chopped him up with an axe and then burned the house down around him. And she was found guilty of his murder, but a little over a hundred white men in that community in Virginia um, in the antebellum period petitioned the governor of Virginia for clemency for her, claiming that there were extraordinary circumstances, extenuating circumstances that made her do what she did. And they thought that she deserved clemency. And she received it. And the the people petitioning included the judge in the case that found her guilty, as well as the sheriff and two of his deputies and a number of other white men in the community. And the reason why they did this was because they said that the circumstances in which she found herself in were so terrible that they needed that they felt the law needed to come in and protect her and that is because the man she was enslaved by was also her father but and one who kept her chained up and continuously tried to force himself sexually upon her and so she had it was just too much she finally killed him and they they sided with her and now this is an extreme case of course but i it start got me thinking about um, the role of law on the ground versus um, the role of law on the books and thinking about the disconnect sometimes between execution of the law on the ground and what we have um, at, at the higher level, say, in, you know, in uh, the state legislature or judicial opinions or that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if there were other circumstances in, in which uh, enslaved people were protected by the law. Um, and so I just started searching. And what I found was really unexpected. Um, these are people who don't have legal standing, who don't have legal personalities, um, uh, and so on, who are, um, who, who are not to be protected by law. But I found that there are thousands and thousands of cases out there of both free black and enslaved people using law to their own benefit in the civil courts in ways that we would not expect. And so I started searching for those. And that's what brought me um, to the work that I do. That's an amazing story. Um, And surprising, I guess, that she was sided with when we think about, you know, we think about these narratives, we often think about how actually that these these white communities would be very anti uh, the enslaved and anti the black communities. What are the type of legal sources that you have found and that you try to work with? So these are sources that tend to not be in any, what we would think of as a traditional archive. So these are things that are still in the courthouse where they may have been for a couple hundred years or with the clerk of the court's office. These are not things that have been digitized or cleaned or organized or put in any kind of file. And in fact, the clerks of the court throughout the U.S. South and really throughout the, throughout the country often don't know they even have them. 
them. They might be in boxes in a storage shed somewhere or in a basement somewhere or kept in old drawers in a room in the courthouse that, that nobody has opened or maybe have, in one case, have um, in uh, Claiborne County, Mississippi, they were painted shut. So I had to chisel them open. Um, but the, And they are trifolded still. And they look like envelopes with old string wrapped around them. And then maybe something that presses, like a, a wax seal or something that keeps them shut. And so when you fold, the, when you open them, they kind of crumble a little bit sometimes and so on. And the day-to-day documentation of the workings of the court systems in these communities. So these are the the trial courts. They are not, you know, the state uh, Supreme Courts or anything like that. These are the trial courts. And those are the courts that are the closest to the people. So they include all sorts of records. They include the criminal side. Courts were held all in the same space, but at different times of the year. So we have the criminal side, we have the civil side, and everything from um, the magistrate's court to the circuit court will be held um, all in the same place. And again, as I said, these are the legal proceedings that people people in local communities are directly involved in. Court week was one of the most important social events in early America. It brought people in uh, in a in a rural community in a disparate community together for a week or two each year, usually in November and May. And other things happened during that time. The auctions would be held on the courthouse steps. State fairs would be held, um, agricultural society meetings, and so on and so on. And people would come and observe. And that included free Black and enslaved people. And so these are legal proceedings that ordinary people are directly involved in. That's what's uh, represented in in these records. They are anything from, uh, you know, one white man suing another white man over a debt recovery case for $30 to an enslaved person suing for his freedom on the grounds that he was kidnapped in uh, New Jersey and trafficked to New Orleans. The records themselves are difficult to access and in often shocking conditions, I mean, like truly shocking conditions, but they contain a wealth of information and a history that will be lost if we don't preserve them soon. Um, and, and about, um, of course, free and enslaved uh, people of African descent and their use of the law and their engagement of the courts and so forth, but also a whole host of other ordinary people who would may not have left records behind. Otherwise, you know, the people who leave the most records behind are the, the wealthy enslavers. And uh, ordinary people, uh, many of them are, are uh, illiterate, uh, do not. And so uh, this 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 corpus of material holds tr- a tremendous number of voices and stories that we haven't heard yet. Mm-hmm. And the ability, you know, to use these to read against the grain and actually try and recover some of the some of the voices that you know aren't coming from the rhetoric of the white enslavers. What sort of language was used in these in these courts and what can that tell us about the power black people had over their legal rights? How much did they capitulate the systematic racism of the court to be granted even a small justice? Right. So, it, it, you know, it it ranges. What I found is that most often uh, they 
well, so I, what I found is most often is particularly in this period before formal emancipation, they couldn't go into court and just say anything. You know, they, you can't go into court and, and open Pandora's box and say, I have civil rights, therefore I should be free. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed to, they, they needed to cast their cases and um, formulate their language that they use in particular ways that um, suited, suited the, the constraints of the time. And I found most often that they, they formulated that language in uh, around uh, property and used the language of property rights uh, to, as a kind of stand in for all sorts of other rights that they may not have had. And they had, in order to make their claims recognizable to those who, um, who are hearing them. Um, which were all whites. I mean, these are all white spaces from the judge to the jury, usually the witnesses, the audience in the gallery, um, and so on. And so they couldn't just come in, as I said, and say, um, you know, I, I am equal. Um, although they do that later after formal emancipation. But beforehand, they have to be savvy in other ways. And so they do it through the language of property, but they also do it through, um, you know, claims to reputation in their community and so on. And that often might involve, you know, sort of claiming that they behaved in a particular way that was expected of them within this racial order, right? So that I am obedient, I am um, quiet, I am hardworking, I am, you know, a valued member of this uh, community, I am not a threat, right? And that sounds in some ways that they are complicit in this sort of white supremacist language or complicit in this world in which they lived in the slaveholders republic. But you have to remember that while they use that language to make their claim, they're making tremendous claims for equal and civil rights. So they use the slaveholders language to their benefit as a tool or as a means to crack into the system and make pretty massive claims for themselves. And that might be um, a means to gain their freedom, which upends that system. But it also could be other things like over a land claim, assuming to recover a debt or back wages and making a claim to essentially to human dignity, to to making this world a lot more bearable for them. Mm-hmm. So yes, they, they ha- find that they have to use the, in some ways, the language of their enslavers, but they use it to their end. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so these are, in some ways, claims to civil rights well before what we would think of as a civil rights, uh, rights movement. And um, they may be mundane, but they are tremendously important to, to human dignity. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
You mentioned earlier having to literally force your way into um, some of these. <laughs> then I would say something you could really call them archives, could you? Because they're not even that kind of formalized. Um, no. <laughs> can you describe some of the experiences you had in trying to recover these, these documents and how you quite literally had to get your hands dirty? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, where did you access these records? My first book is based on Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, and I did that because I wanted to compare. Everybody always says uh, Louisiana is different because of its civil law background. And I wanted to compare common law in uh, a common law jurisdiction with a civil law jurisdiction. I was in graduate school in D.C. I moved down first to Mississippi and went to the courthouse in Natchez, Mississippi, trying to search for these old records, knowing that they weren't in the, say, the Mississippi Department of Archives and History in some very clean space where I could just have somebody bring me the box um, of the records. And I was directed to a place called the Historic Natchez Foundation and told that they have the old records in their basement. So I went over there and they just let me into the basement and there were boxes and boxes and boxes of records, um, some of which were rotting on the ground. Others were in an old vault. And that process then was replicated in counties all around the area. Some are kept better than others. Some are in at least a space that's air conditioned. Others, as I said, are in um, a basement on a dirt floor in an old cardboard box. And some of the, some of the records have been flattened out so that you could read them. Others, you have to open them up and worry about whether they'll crumble or not, which is a whole other worry. And you know, they are ripped, they are falling apart, they have bugs on them, there might be a rat, an old rat, dead rat in the corner. Um, for example, I was doing some research in Iberville Parish, Louisiana, and I'd been there for several months um, searching for things, and I couldn't figure out why there were a number of sets of records that I thought they had, but that they were missing. And finally, after months of talking to people in the clerk's office and over coffee one day, somebody said, oh, I remember that we have this storage shed on the outskirts of town. And so she took me out there. It was pouring rain. And um, she opened the shed door, which was like a garage door where you, that you pull open. She opened it up and it was just a dirt floor with boxes, cardboard boxes that had rotted and the records just spread all over the floor. And somebody had shoved them into old manila um, filing folders from that had just employees' names from the 1960s on there. So they just shoved them into those folders, put them in these boxes and left them there. And I started going through them and they were some of the oldest that the parish had. They were dated back to the 1770s um, and they were from about 1770 to 1830. And it involved um, criminal prosecutions against enslaved people, but also a number of estate records and succession records of free families of color from the region, which would then document just a a wealth of information about those families, about passing on their property, about who their family members were, and so on. We brought a bunch of tr leaf bags, trash bags, and we gathered them up, put them in those bags, and I brought them back to the courthouse, and they gave me a set of tables where 
I dried them out. I brushed the bucks off and other bits and, uh, and then started trying to organize them. I photographed them all and so forth. And I organized them by date and put them in labeled file folders. So that that's that's fairly typical. You know, these these are places that, you know, and part of it, the reason is it, like a lot of it has to do with money. You know, the clerks of the court's office don't get any state funding. All of their funding comes from co- copy fees, essentially, of people who are needing copies of modern day uh, records. And so... So, and they don't, that you know, there isn't anybody trained. Um, these are not archivists and so forth. And but that, that, but these cases are there and they're waiting for us. I mean, I think that court records are something that historians are turning to more and more now, mm-hmm. but they've largely gone unresearched and unnoticed. And I think your experience is a, a case in point of this. Do, do you think that? It was the legal aspect, the evidence that's been off-putting to previous historians. And do you think that's then demonstrative that we have to be more intersectional in our approach to studying the past, particularly when we're looking at marginalized groups? Yes, I, I, I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, and it's not that historians haven't used legal records or even local court records. I mean, they have for generations, really since, um, you know, since the the turn towards social history in the um, late 60s and 70s. Yeah. But they used them in a very different way than I think we're using them now. Um, they used them as a window into say um, an ordinary woman's life to tell a story about her life or um, or about her social world, not about her engagement with law or about law on the ground, right? So social historians have used um, local court records for a couple of generations now for to, as I said, to tell that kind of story. And legal scholars don't use those, hadn't used those kinds of records. They turn toward the printed records of the state Supreme Courts or the appellate decisions and so on that are in printed reporters mm-hmm. or are, that are easily accessed now on a database like Westlaw or something like that as definitive expressions of law, like law on the top. And in the last 10 to 15 years, there has been a merge of these two things, you know, and thinking about moving past the appellate records as conclusive expressions of law and looking at law on the ground and looking at ordinary people's engagement of knowledge of use of the law, whether that is an enslaved person or that is an ordinary woman, or that is a middling man, an artisan or something, and, and looking at their their engagement with the system. Some of your research has proved that, um, you know, we're not just dealing with the enslaved, but actually free, free people as well. Yes, absolutely. So um, enslaved people only had the legal capacity to use the law in one instance, and that is in a lawsuit for their freedom if they were illegally held as a, as an enslaved person. So that the law really is protecting free people in that circumstance where this person maybe was freed in a will 
and wasn't told by the trustees. And so then they sued on those grounds or they're a kidnapped free person who was held in a state of slavery and then had their free status restored. So that's the only circumstance in which an enslaved person has standing before the court to initiate a suit. But free people of color, now this varies depending on the state, but free people of color had a legal personality in far more circumstances. And many of them had the same capacity as whites. So they could contract, they could sue and and be sued. And in civil cases, in most states, they could sue whites. And so, and they do, and they do in a number of different circumstances, Uh, everything from suing for back wages to disputes over land, they divorce one another, and so on. It, It differs by gender, of course. Women, Married women have the same legal disabilities as white women. So once married, they um, uh, come under the doctrine of coverture and, and, uh, and technically don't have legal standing. But otherwise, single women can act, um, single free women of color can act at law in the same way that men can. How do you hope that legal history, and more specifically, your work on enslaved people and black people's um, encounters with with the law. How do you think that is going to contribute to the wider narrative in talking about marginalized people, particularly uh, recovering black voices from the archive and, as you've proven, outside of the archive? Well, on the one hand, it shows us how many other places we can still go to recover those voices. And I don't mean to say that the archive hasn't, isn't, you know, a violent space or a silencing space. I mean, it certainly is. But when we look at these sources, we see that although created by whites and although, you know, these are the same courts, of course, that enslave and um, execute and so on, people of color, but that these spaces are, are not just solely the province of the enslavers, that the marginalized can use them too and do use them and, that, and use them to make a whole host of claims that make their world much more bearable in this violent society in, in which in which they live, mm. and that these are claims not just to um, mundane things or everyday things like um, th- a thirty dollar debt or wages for a week of work for a blacksmith or something like that, but that these are claims in some ways to human dignity. They're claims to accountability. They're claims on the state. They're forcing the state to recognize that claim and respond to it. And that these then are claims to civic inclusion and membership in the polity in ways that they don't have in in other spaces. And so these are in some ways claims to civil rights well before what we would think of as a civil rights uh, rights movement. And um, they may be mundane, but they are tremendously important to, to human dignity. That was Dr. Kimberly Welch, Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. Kimberly was speaking to the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr. 
Kimberly is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize. It's the world's largest history prize, which recognises outstanding historical scholarship. If you'd like to hear more conversations between Helen and other winners of the Dan David Prize, you can access the whole collection early and ad-free now at historyextra.com slash dan-david-prize. And you can find out more about the Dan David Prize, including their events and the other winners, at dandavidprize.org. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. Thank you.